Welcome to the Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Leah Todd. I'm Rob Santiago. So, Rob, here we are in 2020, a new decade. Yeah. What What is happening? I don't know. I thought 2020 was the decade of vision, um, but apparently we're going to war soon. Yes, it's a decade of revision, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's uh, kind of a terrible way to start the new year. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we've seen this in the past many, many times. We have, and yet we've been at war consistently since many New Year's ago. Since many, so many, many New Year's. It's really more of the same, isn't it? But yes, it's, yeah. been, it's been a lot and sad to see a lot of the same kind of fights having to be fought again. But maybe this is the moment where we figure it out. I do hope that you're right. And that people see what's happening in this administration as a just distraction one-on-one and not get fooled by these kind of lies and maneuvers that he's kind of doing. Playing by the old playbook. Yeah, exactly. 101. (laughs) Center for Constitutional Rights know all about the playbook. Yeah. We're going to go forward and we're going to keep fighting. Yeah, we're going to do it again. Every time. (laughs) Every time this happens again, we're going to do it again. Exactly. This is the year. This is the year of vision. This is the year we win. Exactly. Did you do anything kind of fun and relaxing before this kind of war starts (laughs) popping off? Yeah, I mean, um, you know... In the new normal, um, I did catch up with some old friends, which was nice, and family members, and uh, was able to have a little bit of relax. Got to stay at home with my cat. I liked that. Okay. So that was nice. Lovely, lovely. (laughs) How about yourself? Kind of the same. Just hung out, spent some time with family and friends uh, on the holidays and the new year. Didn't do anything kind of crazy. Just trying to catch up on personal life. But I'm back. Ready there to go. you go. So you focused on being a human. Your 2020 was about you. And that's very important. How can we do the work exactly. until we do the work with ourselves? Oh, self-care, self-love is, is definitely needed if you want to kind of do the work that we're doing. Speaking of doing the work, we have a really great episode ahead. Center for Constitutional Rights Associate Executive Director Donnie to Judge speaks with Dr. Ron Daniels, president of the National African-American Reparations Commission and past executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, and Marbury Staley Butts, executive director of Law for Black Lives and a member of the leadership team of the Movement for Black Lives Policy Table. They'll discuss their work to develop platforms for reparations and legislative proposals, how they build better understanding around a definition of reparations and what reparations entail, how all forms of social exclusion and disparities must be part of the reparations conversation, and how discussions of the history of enslavement and of reparations must include a recognition of impacts related to gender, disability, and generational trauma. As always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and any other streaming platforms you might use. Welcome to the Activist Files. My name is Donita Judge, and I am the Associate Executive Director at the Center for Constitutional Rights. I am joined today by Dr. Ron Daniels, President of the National African American Reparations Commission and past Executive Director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, and Marbury Staley Butts, Executive Director of Law for Black Lives and a member of the leadership team of the Movement for Black Lives Policy Table, and helped develop the Vision for Black Lives Policy Platform. The Center for Constitutional Rights hosted a discussion about reparations for blacks in October when our organization made a public commitment to reparations for black people. Today's podcast discussion is another layer of our commitment, so let's get started. Both of your organizations have rolled out multi-point platforms for reparations for blacks. Starting with Ron, can you give our listeners a high-level overview of the demands? Well, first of all, it's an honor to be here and to be a part of this podcast and to be with uh, Mar- Mabry. Mabry, I always get that, you know, Mabry. We even now. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But first of all, let me just say that I'm president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, which is the convener of the National African American Reparations Commission. And NARC, uh, as it is known, has a 10-point program. And that 10-point program, which can be found, by the way, on the website ibw21.org, ibw21.org, has 10 points, and those 10 points really mirror the work, the platform of the CARICOM Reparations Commission. People should be aware that about three or four years ago, the 15 nations of the Caribbean, all of the heads of state, irrespective of their political perspectives, 
made a courageous demand for reparations of the former colonial powers for native genocide and African enslavement. And they decreed that there should be a CARICOM reparations commission and that it should have a program. And it developed a 10-point program. There are commissions throughout the Caribbean. And let me just say that is headed. The chairperson of that commission is Professor Sir Hilary Beckles, who is now currently also the president of the University of the West Indies. So we worked with them and used that as a framework. So our platform has a couple of, I think, salient features, one of which is deals with the question of how reparations would be administered. And so we provide for what's called a reparations finance authority. Because a lot of people say, well, what about reparations? Who's going to get it? Who's going to be in charge? Well, we've dealt with a structure for doing that. Now, this structure would be consist of people who are credible from all sectors, a representative sector of people who would be charged for receiving various forms of reparations and also allocating them. In terms of the specific points and platform, it ranges from the right to return to Africa, a right to return with reparations, a knowledge program, because frankly, one of the injuries that has happened to us as black people is we have amnesia. Our memory of ourselves has been taken away. So there's a knowledge program that's provided for it. There's a notion of a MIAFA or a reparations museum, uh, which would then, you know, look at what did enslavement look like, both in terms of the transatlantic slave trade, but the institution of the so-called peculiar institution in this country. But also then economic development. You know, how do we do economic development? Education. One of the things that we included is even though our Native American brothers and sisters have not achieved full repair after the trail of tears that went on for years and years and years, they eventually did get sovereignty, Kazai sovereignty over land. So if you go to a Native American reservation, they have 95% control of what happens on the land. So we're saying there's vast public lands. Why are African-Americans not be awarded tracts of public land so that we then could do on those lands what we choose to do? Hospitals, educational centers, communication centers, whatever you name it. So it goes down the line, economic development, education, communications, health, health, a big emphasis on how do we, be, because for many years there were actually hospitals in, in black communities all across the country that were devastated, that were eventually taken away. And then finally, there's also a discussion about the war on drugs and the whole question of political prisons and prisons of war, because we want those who have been harmed, who were fighting in the liberation struggle, you know, they need to be repaired. The families need to be made whole. The communities in which they come from made whole. So that's a broad overview. It's, it's in more detail than that. But the idea is an overarching set of 10 points that would help to repair the cultural, economic, spiritual damages done to people of African descent in this country. Thank you very much, Dr. Daniels. And certainly we agree it's important. Education is certainly one of the important tools. I'd like to turn to Marbury at this point and ask you really to respond to the same question in terms of the multi-platform that you've been working on. Thank you so much. And I just want to also extend gratitude to the amazing work of CCR. And it's a pleasure and an honor to be here um, with Dr. Ron Daniels. So thank you both so, so much. So I think I want to just start with, so as you mentioned, the Movement for Black Lives about five years ago now released a Vision for Black Lives platform, which was the culmination of over a year and a half of love and labor um, with over 60 organizations across the country. And it was meant not just to be in response to the escalation and the killing of black folks across the country by police and other law enforcement officials, but it was also meant to be a visionary document. So to name not just what we would settle for, not just what we needed to survive, but also what was necessary to thrive. And so it was a political exercise in deep visioning and dreaming. And one of the planks of that platform is reparations. And so it goes into detail, much of which um, Dr. Daniels already laid out of the full kind of spectrum of reparations for slavery, first and foremost, of course, but also beyond slavery. I think the, the rationale is that by limiting ourselves to demands just around slavery, that we really erase the continued exploitation of black communities through structural discrimination and systemic exclusion, right? And so that is everything from redlining, Jim Crow, convict leasing, the war on drugs that we see um, from the beginning of chattel slavery through today, continuing harms that are systemic against black communities that have to be repaired. And so any demand for reparations has to include both this kind of original sin of slavery upon which our economy has been
been built, um, but also must include um, the kind of badges and incidents that follow that and the continuing ways in which uh, this country, states, corporations, institutions are profiting off of and harming Black lives across the country. And so before I get into kind of all the details, I want to also just define reparations. So I think one thing as reparations has been more popularized in the last few years and due to the work of decades of work by organizations um, like NOC, like MXGM, um, and others, there has been a real popularization of, of um, reparations. But with that, I think, has come a continued misunderstanding of what they are. And so I think everything from reparations is just a check to 40 acres and a mule, that those are pieces of a demand. But actually, there's a longstanding definition of reparations that has been um, presented by the United Nations and adhered to um, by countries and states and actors across the globe. And so that has five different components. And I'm going to name those. I think all of our demands, are, um, it's easier to understand the full range of the demand if you understand that it does not just include money for harm, but also includes these other components. So number one, it's actually a guarantee of non-repetition. That that means changing laws, changing policies, changing practices, destroying institutions sometimes that will lead to the continuation of those harms, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is important because very often we think about um, reparations as being just money cut, but it may be that the harms that underlie that are continued via policy. And so this guarantee of non-repetition is really important. That's number one. Number two is restitution to the return of the pre-harm situation. So what was the situation either legally, culturally, socially, geographically that you were in before the harm was committed? And how do we put people back in that position? And I think... Um, when that's not possible, which it isn't always possible, then it's a guarantee of compensation to get you as close to that position as possible. Number three is compensation. So we think about this kind of traditionally in operations, but it means paying folks for the harm that's been done to the extent that you can financially access the damages. Right? And so we think about it is almost unimaginable to think about all the damages caused by slavery against not just black individuals for their labor, but the families that were destroyed. Mm -hmm. More than half of all families were separated under chattel slavery. And so what is the financial cost of that is almost immeasurable. But thinking to the best of our ability to really assess that and to compensate folks for that. Number four is satisfaction. And this often includes an apology, but it's really accounting for all of the types of damages, reputational, emotional, physical damages, and really doing some type of way to satisfy those harms via an apology, via an acknowledgement, via an assessment. And then lastly, and I think this is really important, is rehabilitation. And that means medical, psychological, emotional, physical, all of the ways in which these institutions have harmed our people. How do we actually rehabilitate them for those harms? And so I just want to lay that out. And again, um, this is a UN definition that's widely accepted. But to say that when we see operations for slavery, we don't just mean a check. We mean that there was intergenerational trauma that has resulted from slavery. There are countless other emotional, physical, cultural, spiritual theft of long-standing traditions of people of African descent that also have to be tended to in a reparations package. And so when the vision of Black Lives cause reparations for slavery, we don't just mean the labor that was stolen under slavery or the genocide of people in the transatlantic slave trade. We also mean all of the families that were separated, all the spiritual practices that were stolen and erased, and all of the physical and emotional trauma that has been inherited through generations. And so that means investing in cultural centers. It means investing in rehabilitations of those practices um, and really extends beyond the check. And so in addition to reparations for slavery, we also demand reparations for the war on drugs. So in a similar vein, understanding that is one of the badges and the aftermath of slavery is the prison industrial complex that's targeted black folks um, for at least the last 40 years, if not longer. Mm -hmm. And it resulted in literally hundreds of thousands of people in cages and families destroyed yet again. Not to mention the other consequences of criminalization from loss of housing, to exclusion from the job market, and so on and so forth. We also name the miseducation of Black folks in this country and the lack of education opportunities provided as a result of the badges of slavery. And so reparations for decades and generations of miseducation and maleducation that's happened. We also specifically, I think that this is really important, and both M4BL and Lost of Black Lives take a Black queer feminist lens to much of the work that we do. And so we also want to name and acknowledge the long-standing impacts on um, Black women, on Black queer folks, and on Black GNC folks, especially the exploitation and the reproductive label of black women. And so we know, for instance, that actually the transatlantic slave trade was abolished in 1808, and it is through the rape and the forced reproduction of black women that the slave trade continued in this country for decades after that. And so what does it mean to 
to compensate, to think about, to examine and assess the harms on Black women's bodies that folks under, underwent. And then lastly, the other important lens is that of disability justice, that many of these policies from slavery to the mass criminalization and mass incarceration of Black people to redlining have disproportionately impacted people with disabilities. And so it doesn't mean to also lift up um, folks who have disabilities and ask questions about how, in fact, these practices have not only caused more disabilities, but have also led to the death that vision of Black lives lays for. Thank you for that. As I listen to you, I recognize that there are some overlaps for the demands for reparations. Marby, you did talk about really the exploitation, certainly of black women's bodies. And you have actually focused, uh, not you, but the movement for black lives really specifically calls out reparations of the African descent and past and current oppression of economic and reproductive labor of queer trans, gender nonconforming, and the disabled people, as you mentioned. Can you just kind of expand on that just a bit more yeah. in terms of? So I think, um, as I mentioned briefly, during the actual slave trade, one of the key components that allowed the continuation of exploitation of Black labor was the reproduction of Black children by Black women, MGNC folks and queer folks. And so the reality is that it was Black women's bodies that were used to perpetuate slavery throughout this country, often via rape almost always via coercion. And this was happening at the time as literally, as I said, half of all black families were divided during slavery. And so not only were black women and black GNC folks forced to reproduce, often raped, but then were forced to separate from their children and their families. I mean, very often we think about slavery as labor exploitation, which it surely was, but that it's really important to name and to assess the full dynamics, the kind of holistic costs of slavery on black communities. And part of that was the way in which patriarchy and misogyny played into and exacerbated slavery and the costs and the harms of slavery for black women and, and GNC folks. And so I think, you know, it's not that we don't know that, like that's science. We all understand that reproduction is a key part of slavery, but I think we don't name it as part of the violence and the crime of slavery very often. One of the things that too is, frankly, just in terms of this conversation, why reparations is important. It is first and foremost important to African Americans because it's an education about ourselves, and I think the the lens that uh, Movement for Black Lives is bringing to it, first of all, it's true, but I think it will resonate. Because a lot of this is history that we don't want to talk about. It's been buried. And some people don't know all of this story. So in a way, as we're educating people around reparations, we're reminding ourselves of what happened to us and why it is only healthy for us to resist. It is only healthy for us to make these demands. And Professor Sir Hillary Beckles makes this point all the time. And Dr. Ivor Carruthers, who's on our commission, makes that. If we did nothing, I mean, demand in and of itself is reparative to us as a part of our healing process. So I wanted to sort of emphasize that point, because when we do this work, very often that is not examined as much as it should be. I also just like to reinforce the reality that we're not just talking about enslavement, though we have Dr. Patricia Newton, CEO of the Black Psychiatrists of America, who's on our commission. I mean, people are now looking at the scientific evidence of the intergenerational driving of that trauma into our DNA. So that some of the behavior that we see and some of the things that we do is now, I forget the terms that they use, and I'm, I'm listening, I just came from a session, so I got to master the terminology, that this is serious damage that we've been experiencing. So I just want to cite that. But also for folks to understand, Claude Anderson in his book, Black Labor, White Wealth, talks about this, that Jim Crow laws, that we were deprived of a lot of things. Martin Luther King, by the way, people should study a part of what he talked about. And he, he didn't say reparations per se, but he outlined the Homestead Act, white farmers, and this was a, a safety valve in a way, I mean, because there was serious tensions in this capitalist society. So the Homestead Act was kind of a safety valve. And the Homestead Act, by the way, in the West provided huge tracts of land for farmers, but it also the railroads and, and the capitalists also benefited from it. But who did not benefit it and who was excluded from it were black people. And then you have the FHA that created the suburbs and gave people that whole notion of a house and a home and so forth. Black people excluded. The GI Bill. In the South, agricultural extension agents that provided services and helped white farmers while black folks were denied. See, all of these things where there's an exclusive, targeted denial of black folks are subject to reparations. And just to build on that, too, I think um, 
it's so powerful to go through that history and to name all of the different systemic exclusions and that they all accumulated harms. That those things built upon each other at every juncture to increase disparities in wealth, increase disparities in health rates. Like it is true across the country that black women die here in New York City at 18 times the rate um, during getting birth as white women. And that is a result of that accumulation of harms, of stress, of trauma. Um, and so I think that reparations has to account for and assess the sum of those parts when thinking about what actually a comprehensive package might look like. Thank you. You know, we've heard a lot this year about H.R. 40, Mm -hmm. and uh, we know that Representative Conyers was really the architect behind that legislation. It was reintroduced for many, many years, but you've said earlier today that the legislation has shifted a bit. Can you talk about H.R. 40, where it was, where it is now, and Right. And let me just say this, because it's also important to name some of the unsung heroes and heroines sometimes that are involved in this. Uh, so John Conyers, Connie Winston Conyers, who's a dear friend of mine, was in his district in Detroit. He didn't come up with the idea of doing this. There were people in the community who kept coming to him saying, well, why don't you take on reparations? And particularly a gentleman whose name was Reparation Ray Jenkins. And I just want to say out his name because, you know, he kept hammering and hammering. And fortunately, there was a conscious community that Congressman Congress was associated with that said, hmm, let's do this. And it occurred at the time when there was an immediate precedent, and that was the awarding of the reparations, which should have been done. And one of the real stains on American history, there are many, but the internment of Japanese citizens in concentration camps as a stain. And so people began to think, oh, well, maybe this is possible. And so the first bill was kind of modeled after the bill for reparations for Japanese, but it was to create a study, to study slavery and whether or not the damages warranted reparations. And we embraced it because we saw it as an educational tool, an organizing tool. And it was reintroduced every year, uh, H.R. 40, which is 40 acres and a mule, that's sort of the idea uh, from 1989 uh, to the present. So every year it was reintroduced. And sometimes it got up to maybe 50 sponsors. Other times it was very few, but it has never gotten out of committee. Now, one of the points we made is that through a collective effort of the folks working with the National African-American Reparations Commission, and because of our interface with the Movement for Black Lives, we created a task force that actually rewrote the bill so that the bill that is now being sponsored by Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee is a bill that will not just study whether reparations are warranted, it is a bill to study reparations proposals for African Americans. And it includes the language from the United Nations that uh, Marbury mentioned earlier, that language, we put that language in the bill. So it's an entirely different bill. And what we now see is it has now more than 120 sponsors, more than ever before in the House of Representatives. It also, there's a companion bill in the Senate, was introduced by Cory Booker, that has sponsors as well. Now, it is also endorsed by Speaker Pelosi, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. So this bill is going to pass. When it's introduced, it will pass in, uh, on Juneteenth, and we helped to orchestrate that. There was a historical congressional hearing. And I got to tell you, I was there for it was unbelievable. But they have never seen anything like that on Capitol Hill. We were just in the one hearing room. They had to open up, I think it was five different overflow rooms. Almost a thousand people were on Capitol Hill on that day. Beyond that, there are a number, first of all, presidential candidates are talking about it. There was a recent debate. It keeps coming up. Whoever, I mean, who, and people are tripping over themselves to say, at least I support HR 40. Others are saying, if I'm elected president, I will sign it. I mean, so they're on record. And so this bill is going to be introduced. It will pass. But it's also an incredible educational tool as we move forward. So the ACLU has joined this struggle and is working with the National African American Reparations Commission. We now have also in this core group, Movement for Black Lives, is represented in it as well as we're doing these educational forums around the country. It looks like there's a discussion with Human Rights Watch in terms of being involved in it as well. So H.R. 40 is a critical part of the reparations movement, not only here, But we also learned that it is carefully being watched throughout the world. So H.R. 40 is very powerful in that regard. That is outstanding. Thank you. So the New York Times 1619 project was welcomed with fanfare and received criticism when it was published in August. A number of school districts, including Chicago, 
and a handful of schools across the country have adopted the curriculum. What role do you hope the 1619 Project will play in future conversations about reparations? I think that, Dr. Daniels mentioned this, this country has a long history of amnesia when it comes to both the actual occurrences of the genocide that was the transatlantic slave trade and then slavery, but also of the intricacies of it. I was in Germany Literally every single bridge in which there was a label that was forced by the Jewish population, there was a plaque that names that. In every house mm. in which um, somebody was sent to a concentration camp and killed, there was a plaque that names that history, that names that pain. And we live in a country where literally there are still monuments to genocidal killers throughout the South. And so we really have never reckoned with either the occurrences or the legacy of slavery in this country. And so I think welcome any attempts to do that to the point of not just naming actual holes of chattel slavery, but also naming the lasting impacts of those holes, whether it be in generational trauma and things we're just now learning about in terms of how our brains work and how generations of enslavement and torture impact families and individuals. And so I think really welcome any attempts and any educational projects that do a deep dive, that say, actually, we've not reckoned with this history. And not only reckoned with the holes of this history, but also with the impacts. And so every single institution, every church, every philosophy organization, every school, every old college, whether it's Georgetown or Harvard, all of these institutions were built on the wealth that was gone on and exploited from Black labor in this country and from the theft of Indigenous land. And so I think for us to be real, the stock market, all of that, it feels so important for us to name that and to study that history. And, and the reality is, I mean, as I mentioned, one of the requirements of reparations from the UN is this satisfaction, this acknowledgement of the harms that have been done. In other countries, whether it is Germany, whether it is South Africa, whether it is Rwanda, has done a much better job of actually acknowledging those harms. And so I think even the pushback from conservatives to this project, I think, is just an indication of how scaled people are to actually talk about the history and the legacy of slavery in this country. And the reality is that not only was it a horrific genocidal project that led to the wealth of many people across the globe and in this country, but it also was a deeply economic project that continued after shadow slavery in the form of racialized capitalism, whether it is sharecropping, whether it is convict leasing, and now the prison industrial complex. And so I think it's important that we draw those lines very clearly and that we name that this is a country that was really built on two sins that led to its economic success. One of those was shadow slavery and the other one was the theft of indigenous lands. And I think that once we do that, we have to then reckon with what, how do we actually assess those harms and solve them? And so I think the more that that work is done by and led by black folks, the more authentic and comprehensive it can be. And the, the least impact it has in terms of corporations and capitalism on how the story is told, the most honest it can be. And so I think there are lots to be said about it. But I think that it's a really important education project. And we have a school system that literally has erased the history of slavery. Part of this demand is a re-enlivening and a re-education of what actually the impacts have been. As well as the 1619 piece, there are... HBO, I mean, there are all kinds of things that we're saying, what? Well, that's a result of a movement. That's the other thing we want to call out. There is a tremendous long-standing movement that goes in ebbs and flows, but it is surging at this moment in a way that we've never seen before. And I think that has to do not only with those of us who've been here doing this work for a long time, because we've been doing it for a long time, and if we had known how to do it better, it would have maybe, but there's a whole new thrust of energy I think Tanahashi Coates and his work, the New Atlantic, certainly helped popularize it. And we can't say enough about the movement for Black Lives and the energy that they put into this, the thinking that they put into it, and the on-the-ground work that is occurring. But I also think that there's a way in which this current resident in the White House is also contributing, because I think there are some folks in the white community who are reacting to just the ugliness, the lack of civility, and just the, I mean, there are so many isms to describe it. So I think there's also a way of people saying, you know, if this country is going to be what Martin Luther King, you know, he talked about this dream and the whole notion of a more perfect union. And, you know, I kind of fall into that a little bit too. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this more, but it must be one which deals squarely with addressing this history and repairing this history, which is going to be a long-term project. But what it means is that this nation has the potential to be what it has never really become, as Langston Hughes once said, a real demonstration of how human beings can live 
you know, with decency and with democracy, real democracy, economic democracy, not just political democracy, and become a real beacon, not in an arrogant sense, by example. So all of those things, it seems to me, are incredibly important. But the movement, people should never forget that these things occur. They don't drop out of the sky. They occur because of movement. So the New York Times and other entities are reacting to that. And I would also say the other thing that's important is there are people up inside of these institutions. You know, one of the things I, one of my dear friends, Dr. James Turner at the Africana Studies and Resource Center at Cornell, and a dear friend of mine, he, there's conversations that, that are emblazoned into my mind. And one time we were sitting down, and he said, you know, Ron, one of the things that's important is we have to have black people who are of the race and for the race. And you see, there are a lot of people, as Charles Barron, when another dear friend of mine, he said a lot of people are cosmetically black, but they're not authentically black. So the other thing is inside of these institutions are conscious black people, are conscious people of, of color, are, are even conscious allies who are now pushing it. But they're pushing it because they've been immersed in the movement or somehow they've been, they've had an epiphany and are moving it. And by the way, let me just say quickly too, even on the global scale, you know, the demand for reparations by Jamaica and some of these countries, they're dependent on these colonial powers. But guess what? Inside of all of these countries is also a diaspora that is becoming the contradiction up inside of these countries. They're now citizens of Britain. They're now citizens of France. And they're now building with labor-oriented and socialist-oriented movements contradictions that are now challenging and demanding. So this is, this is really a very, very, very exciting period to be living you know, to see this coming to fruition. Now, it's, you know, it won't be in my lifetime, you know, but that's okay. King said it doesn't matter, you know, because our people collectively down the line are going to see repair. And that repair, as Marbury has laid out so eloquently, is not just the immediate awarding of reparations. King said, and we're in this season, he said, true compassion is more than flinging a coin at a beggar. It comes to understand that the edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And so really what this is about is creating a new edifice. So I think that at its heart, reparations is about a restructuring, that it's about acknowledgement that because of the harms of history globally and in this country, there has been an accumulation of wealth and power in the hands very often of those who have inflicted those harms. And so I think this idea of not just a check that's cut or a tweaking of systems or an apology that's made, but actually reparations on how do we assess the full impacts of those harms and actually address them and guarantee they won't happen again. And I think for M4BL, for Law for Black Lives, the organizations that I am part of, were abolitionists, right? And so we believe that these harms are actually inevitable under a system of racialized capitalism with the prison industrial complex. And that in actually, in actuality, if we want to end and cease these harms, we have to transform not just um, white hegemony, but also racialized capitalism, the structures that allow for that, um, the global economic systems that in incentivize the harm and oppression of some and for the benefit of others. And so I think this idea, too, of reparations is really a clarion call, not just for a single demand in this country, but it's also a framework for understanding how we actually make change in ways that enable equity, that allows for the full dignity of all people, that allows for an acknowledgement of mistakes that were made, and so not to recreate those mistakes. But I just want to kind of amen this idea of that this is actually about transformation. And it's about a reallocation of power. And, and to the point that was made by Dr. Daniels and that's in the platform, there also has to be democratic structures, and this goes to Du Bois, that allow for and create that type of democracy. So how do we actually engage, uh, make sure that those who are most impacted by these harms are making decisions about how money is allocated, that we don't recreate the same power structures and the same patriarchy structures and the same gendered and racial um, and class structures that are system what are the actual new democratic structures that allow us to think about reparative justice, to think about reparations in a way that actually creates something new and doesn't just recreate uh, past homes? Okay, thank you. Demands for reparations is not new. As you know, the first demands for reparations were made by formerly enslaved people before the Civil War. Almost 160 years later, we are still trying to convince lawmakers to right this wrong. How do you stay committed to this struggle and what words of encouragement can you share with your listeners to remain encouraged in this fight for reparations? Well, for me, it's very simple. And I think about this all the time because I, I see myself as being in communion with those ancestors. We recently took a tour, the National African American Reparations Commission sent a team 
to Evanston, Illinois, where, by the way, is where Northwestern University is, this liberal institution. And it's very ironic that it's often, in, you know, it's up south. But when you look at the history of what happened, it didn't matter. It was just, you might as well have been so-called down south. But when we, we were going through those communities and we were listening to people who talked about their upbringing, you know, Dr. Ira Carruthers was born in that community and Lionel Jean-Baptiste, uh, Haitian, his, the Haitian community that developed and others who talked about their parents and what they did and what they struggled to create and how it was taken away from them, how they were robbed of it. Well, I'm an emotive person. I mean, I'm in the head, but I, I feel that. When I go to Selma, Alabama for the bridge crossing Jubilee, I do that to keep that communion with my ancestors. In my own history, my father you know, took us to a tree where an ancestor was lynched. A grandfather who was born in Mutual Aid Cemetery. You know, Mutual Aid Cemetery comes out of the whole effort of people who created these black institutions, mutual aid societies, that whole history. And so for me, it is about how to continue to remind ourselves about that, uh, but also to struggle to achieve repair. Because to me, if I don't do that, I am betraying really my the fact that I'm standing on the legacy of, of that struggle and there is a need to continue that struggle. So that's how I sustain it for me. That's why I think rituals and ceremonies are also important, not just in and of themselves and by themselves, but there are a way of reminding us, encouraging us, you know, so that we can continue to engage the struggle. And, you know, and I think that people can contribute. Not everybody will contribute at the level of insane work that I do. I mean, it's like this multitasking and so forth and so on. But everybody ought to contribute in some way. And let me just say that it was interesting. I think Marbury mentioned in an earlier piece that there was a commemoration held on the day of Queen Mother Audley Moore's birthday. Well, Queen, I was mentored by Queen Mother Moore. She adopted me as her son, as a son, one of her sons. You know, and she taught me about reparations and so forth. And so it's people like her. And when you just think of the many, 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 many people who have struggled and have contributed then, you know, I don't think I have anything other than an obligation to do this work. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think that we are in a righteous fight. And it's a fight that's been carried on and held by and informed by and killed by our ancestors. And so I think um, that's a source of inspiration and a constant pushing that this is our mandate in some basic ways. I also, I mean, I just... I think we've won. Like, we've won so much. And I think that, as Dr. Nina said, we're in a moment of resurgence and of power, that the movement is strong. And that, you know, as you mentioned, Belinda, 20 years before slavery ended, made the first claim for reparations of one of them, and she won. And we see continuous fights. And not, we haven't, you know, reached the promised land. We haven't gotten the full victory. But over and over again, our people fight and they win. And so I think looking at our history, whether it's what's happening in Evanston right now, the Chicago victory with the George Torture cases, the Tuskegee victory, which is a litigation victory, KOCOM, the fights that folks are waging and the, the battles that we have, one of the important things to look to. This is not a hopeless fight, that it's a fight that our people have waged righteously and have in some cases won. And when we haven't won, we've learned from not winning and we continue to fight. I also think one a really important moment. And so I think um, both as um, as Dr. Nathan said, we have this resurgence of movement that for the first time in my lifetime, and I think in, in many people's lifetime, we have presidential candidates talking about reparations, even if they don't have it 100% right. <laughs> we're going to help them. Reparations <laughs> is not baby bonds, just to call out. Um, <laughs> but the reality is that because of movement, because of the brave people, um, many of them, black, queer, young folks, put their bodies in the streets in Ferguson because of the, the endless work of um, Dr. Daniels and others, of generations of work, we're at a really unique moment. And I think that the other thing about this moment is the decriminalization of marijuana that's happening across the, mm -hmm. the country. And so as we talked about, one of the badges and incidences of slavery is the war on drugs, is the continuation. It's no coincidence that it was under Nixon and the post-civil rights movement that we see the declaration of a war on black people, as Tupac would say, and then the incarceration of hundreds of thousands of black folks. And now in this moment, as we're starting to decriminalize and legalize marijuana, and it is white men predominantly who are benefiting from that, making millions of dollars, billions in this industry that is excluded, that continues to exclude black and brown people, but especially black people, um, that there's an important moment of what does reparations mean for the war on drugs? That as we legalize cannabis, what does it look like to have a reparations frame? What does it look like to actually repair the lives of 
of the millions of folks who have been harmed by the war on drugs. And so I think the work that's happening in Chicago, the fights here in New York City for equity inside of these bills and to demand the patient's framework is part of the movement work that, that is possible. And so I just feel really excited by that. And I think people are fighting tirelessly. Folks who spent time in cages, folks who are directly impacted by these systems are now demanding a reckoning of those systems and a reckoning of the harm. We cannot just erase and bandage over this most recent iteration of white supremacy and our policies that we have to actually reckon with it. And so I feel really hopeful right now. And I think that all is possible through movement. And we're seeing an intensification of movement Mm -hmm. of the people who have been most impacted, which I think is how we win. And so between the ancestors behind us and the young people who are in the streets and in the corridors of power in the capital in front of us, I have no doubt that we're going to win this. Thank you. This has been an important and emotional topic, so it was important to end on this hopeful note. Uh, Thank you, Ron and Marbury, for sharing your knowledge and perspective with our listeners. We will have all the resources that you mentioned, certainly on the Activist Files website, certainly Moving for Black Lives Toolkit, uh, Reparations Toolkit. We will be happy to post that and any other materials that you think that would be helpful for our listeners to really understand uh, this important topic. So thank you very much. This has really been an education for me. I read The Debt many, many years ago. I was just thought it was the best book I had ever read in my life at that time. And so thank you for bringing it all together again. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And now for our Center for Constitutional Rights News Roundup. Here's some of what we've been up to since our last episode. We've been doing a lot of work in Louisiana supporting groups fighting the petrochemical industry. Listeners will remember the many cases we brought around the Bayou Bridge Pipeline. One of those cases, challenging the pipeline company's use of eminent domain to grab private land, was just in court on appeal. Meanwhile, we intensified our work with activists and residents of the area known as Cancer Alley. The community group Rye St. James discovered new information about the existence of graves of enslaved people on the land of a proposed plastics plant. We joined residents of St. James Parish, environmental justice groups, and legal organizations to urge St. James Parish Council to rescind its decision to allow Formosa Plastics to build a massive petrochemical facility in a predominantly Black community. We submitted alarming information about the levels of cancer-causing chemicals the facility would emit. We also told the council about the company's failure to follow through on its promise to lessen exposure to school children and residents nearby and its failure to alert parish officials and residents of the existence of the graves of enslaved people on the land. We've also been fighting Trump's public charge rules on multiple fronts. The rules are an attack on poor, non-white immigrant families. Together with the Legal Aid Society and the National Immigration Law Center, we filed Make the Road New York v. Pompeo, the first federal lawsuit seeking to jointly block three interrelated public charge rules put out by the Trump administration. These rules seek to wholly transform the United States' longstanding family-based immigration system into a system that favors the wealthy and discriminates against people of color. These radical proposed changes violate immigration statutes and the Constitution. Finally, once again, the NYPD has been shown to be failing in its mandated reforms. The court-appointed monitor in our landmark stop-and-frisk case, Floyd v. City of New York, released its latest status report, which documented that the NYPD is not doing enough to end its racist policing practices. Significant racial disparities persist, with Black and Latinx New Yorkers much more likely than whites to be subjected to illegal stops. I just need you to say the real AF. The real AF. This is the real AF. Hi, I'm Leah Todd. Hey, I'm Rob Santiago. And we're here with Nadia Ben Youssef, advocacy director at CCR. Welcome. Thank you. The first advocacy director here at the center. Listen, Rob. That's it. <laughs> so basically, this session just goes. We're going to ask you a bunch of you know really quick questions, give us quick responses, so our audience members can just learn a little bit more about you. Okay. Are you right. ready? Well, I mean, am I? 
Am I ready? You ready? Are we ready for anything yeah. or yeah. Life is it. just jumping in. You know what I'm saying, Leah. Exactly. <laughs> All right, let's jump right to it. Would you rather eat French fries or waffle fries? Ooh, good one. French fries with mayonnaise, waffle fries with ranch. Mm. That's so European. Thank you. Yes, indeed. That's not common here. Ranch is Montana, though. Waffle fries with ranch, uh, straight up. Which I learned this past weekend that Nadia grew up in Montana. Born and raised, eastern Montana. Up in the mountains. Ranch on everything. Big sky country. Huh. Yeah. Always a new thing to learn about <laughs> you. Would you rather live for a week in the past or the future? Assuming we have a future. Wow. That's bold. Indeed. <laughs> um, a week in the past or a week in the future. I'm going to say a week in the past knowing what I know now. I like how you... Flip the question a little. Yeah, added a little caveat. I did. Uh, <laughs> I had to. I don't want to redo. I mean, it would just be amazing to to redo with some with some foresight, hindsight, if you will. It's, it's true. Then would you have lived and learned? That's the question. That's <laughs> my transformative justice partner. That's the question. So would you rather fulfill your biggest wish or re- resolve your biggest regret? Mm. So on that note, fulfill my biggest wish um, I think regret is critical to learning. Do you have a big wish? Is it a secret? Do I have a big wish? It's existential, really, which is mm-hmm. about um, being happy. It's about liberation and broad happiness. That's it. That's it. That's what we're working towards. Amen. That's why you're here. Amen. Actually, to piggyback that, would you rather have happiness or would you rather have joy? Oof. So are folks familiar with Enneagrams? No. Personality test. Everyone needs to do it. Find out your number. My number is, what's my number? (laughs) Anyway, I'm the enthusiast. And um, it means that my greatest challenge in life is chasing happiness. Mm. Like, am I happy? Will that make me more happy? Should I change my life to chase my happiness? So, so that's it. Isn't happiness always changing though? Like... Have you ever found the true happiness within, though? This is intense. Is this what the real <laughs> AF is about? That's it. That's my question. No. This is actually no, the real I have AF this whole therapy session. I know, right? This is all a joke. This is really an intervention. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Would you rather never speak again or never stop talking? Wow. You know, I think... I'm going to go with the first. Never, never speak again. Huh. Yep. To be a, an ever-present listener, I think, here's my flip on that, that deep listening is, is poetry. That if you can do it well, there's something really beautiful about it. So never oh. speak again. That also means you know our own secrets. Exactly. Like Game of Thrones. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Kind of political intrigue thing, yeah. That's life. Fallback career. Okay. You know, court member of the court. I'll do it. Or a monk. Also. Also don't talk, I think. Some monks. See? It's like Zen. You got options. I got yeah. That must bring that must bring happiness when you got options. (laughs) (laughs) Which oh, this is my favorite. Would you rather be on a survival reality show or dating show? Wow. These sort of physical risks of the survivor shows, I'm like not a, not a huge. You don't want to make your own fire. Fan. I don't need. I don't need that. I don't need to be running away from crocodiles, whatever they do on those shows. Instead, you can be running away from a terrible potential life partner. Exactly, but intriguing. I think the the practice, the meeting people, oh, that could be interesting. I think your practice of deep listening would be completely transformative on the on a uh, dating show. The dating show franchises <laughs> out there. It's true. Say nothing. You could just listening. organize all of the contestants. They'd turn on the potential uh, potential candidate. That would be it. Exactly. You have so many people that you could, well, that's well, the survivor show too. People leveraging their strengths to overthrow capitalism or something, you know? Yeah. That's true. It is kind of this alternative, interesting world where people have to like reconsider not only like how to survive like the social structures and the interaction, and that's really how the survival comes is like creating new structures and new forms of whatever self-governance looks like. Leah Todd, ladies and gentlemen. I'm obsessed with these things that show us our true humanity. Yeah. 
whether it's The Bachelor or our, you know, alternative island uh, survival lives. Yeah. That's it. Would you rather be too busy or too bored? We're going back to therapy. Listen, I wonder what I would be like, what the world would, my world would be like if I were bored. What's possible when you're bored? When you're busy, yo, I know that. I know that. And I chase that again, if we're talking about therapy, like am I busy, this sort of busyness complex that I want to be really busy because it makes me feel productive and it makes me feel like I'm responding to the needs of the world. Busy, busy, busy. Problem. Bored sounds to me like stillness and a bit more reflection and maybe what I would, what I would hope for. So I want to be more bored. More bored. So not necessarily bored, but Having a moment of rest and reflection and recuperation. Which sounds like, bo- yeah. Which is what we're all aiming for someday. Uh, right. <laughs> that doesn't sound boring It's not boredom, I know. That's, that's I power. maybe you cannot be bored. Maybe. They're chasing of joy. Learning <laughs> <laughs> so much. Learning so much deep stuff. Good. Good. And this okay. is the real deep question. I mean, would you rather make a phone call or make a text? Let me check right now. This is a revelation right now. This is a, what's it called? A confession. <laughs> Currently, we're now I have 117 unread text messages. Whoa. It's a problem. So email or text, it's the same for you. It is. I just cannot. Is it from one person? <laughs> yeah, well, right. Are you ghosting someone? <laughs> oh, I'm, yes, it's just I'm waiting. I just need the right time. I need enough time to respond thoughtfully. How about this? Maybe these are not things that should be handled over text. Right. And then they come through your text. And you're like, I can't. And you're like, how about we schedule a phone call for all of the call? feelings and discussion that needs to happen from this text and like, paragraph you and just said. Apologizing for, you know, not responding for the previous three months, text. for example, yeah. and then the text that you sent me before. It's all that. I think it's more like phone call or email. I'm a strong proponent of if it can't be handled with a sentence, maybe it doesn't belong in the text world. Fair. Like maybe don't process with me in paragraphs Fair. over a text <laughs> a text chain. Can't do it. The one thing I've been asked, I've been writing, I've been putting my cell phone number on my business card. So I'm like, yo, if you don't hear from me for a month, text me. But then I don't answer the text. Yeah, so yeah, maybe I don't even know. Call me. Call me. <laughs> anyway, we're working through. This go. was the extremely real AF. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for my again. Nadia. Never doing it again. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nadia. Thanks, guys. I'm ready. Appreciate you. <laughs>